You're listening to the Call Me Mr. You, the podcast, your new home for inspiration, family, sports conversations, and a lot of other stuff. We're your all-purpose pod for an all-purpose life and your weekly mirror check before you go change the world, baby. Enjoy the show. On the next episode of They Call Me Mr. You, we're launching into deep waters today. Not to get more downloads or to garner some kind of sympathy or pity. Not at all. I made you guys a promise in our very first season. I'm going to unpack some chapters of my life to help you understand how They Call Me Mr. You became a necessary step in my personal, professional, and spiritual development and why this show is what it is today. I got an incredible episode in store for you guys today. It might actually blow your mind. Just maybe. It starts in five, four, three, two, one. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the All Purpose Pod for an All Purpose Life. We're your weekly mirror check before you go change the world, baby. You know how we do it. I'm your host, Mr. You. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Welcome back to the All Purpose Pod for an All Purpose Life. We're in season three of the People's Podcast. Wherever you are today, however you're hearing our podcast, thank you so much for making They Call Me Mr. You a small part of your morning, your day, and your week. We're your weekly mirror check before you go change the world. Take a look, baby. I love it. Season three is almost halfway done. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. I am excited. I'm fired up about all we've been seeing, hearing, and receiving. Well, I'm hearing from you guys as well. Thank you again for your support, for subscribing to our podcast. Anywhere you can find podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast from, you can find They Call Me Mr. You there. Please subscribe, listen, and share. Let's jump into our incredible episode for today. Before we begin, I want to tell you my goal for this conversation right up front, just so you know where we're coming from. I want to build a bridge that connects where we are right now to where we ultimately need to be in God's perfect plan, okay? Now, when I use the term man, M-A-N, in this podcast, I do not want you to believe or think I'm excluding women from this particular episode topic. I'm not. I mean man as in the human person, okay? Man or woman. This applies to you thoroughly as well, okay? So just be advised on that. But my goal here is to build a bridge that connects where we are right now to where we ultimately need to be in God's perfect plan. Now, I know personally the need for acceptance. I dealt with it most of my life, more than half of my life to be to be factual, and the efforts to find that in groups and organizations is very common. But at the end of the day, there's going to be times, and I've experienced quite a few, where the focus is on you and God alone. We have to work out our old soul salvation with fear and trembling, the Bible tells us. The rest of the pack, our groups, our friendships, our social circles, they can't obtain this for us. The goal is the garden. Many of you have heard that podcast episode and you loved it. But it's still factual. The goal is the garden. 
The creator with his creation, walking in the cool of the day, conversing, teaching, loving. God wants your hearts back at the end of the day. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to wreck your perfect life. He doesn't want to mess up your flow or mess up your plan. He wants your heart back. My only hope here is that each individual warrior that's listening to this podcast, male or female, no matter where you are in your life and in your faith, I pray that you turn to the only wise God who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his presence with great joy. Now, if there's an agenda for this episode today, that's it. Now, the path from boyhood to manhood is definitive in that there's a time when the handoff of maturity should reasonably take place. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 talks about the change or shifting from childhood to adulthood. The apostle Paul wrote, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. In that event, Paul is talking about himself. Now, it's really a sad state of affairs when men or man in his seeking of purpose lays down his weapons, lay down his sword, lay down his ability to battle and fight for something less effective, for something less valuable. We've had many podcasts on this topic, people who trade in the authentic item for something that's cheaper and less authentic. It's tragic. But Paul is talking about a mature church that understands the times that they find themselves in. You know, the church as a whole, and this is not really an episode about the church. This is really about us as individual people because we make up the church and what we bring to the table affects the whole. The parts affect the whole. Now, as a mature church, the mature church, let me give you a picture of the mature church. I'm not asking you to describe your church or make comparisons. I'm just giving you a picture of what the mature church should look like. They're not deceived by how things look around them. They recognize what's going on behind the scenes, meaning spiritual movements, activity, conflict. They know that playing house and make-believe aren't options for mature adults. They have to talk like an adult, walk like an adult, love like an adult, serve like an adult. Work like an adult and war like an adult. They know that sitting still is not an option. Not when people are dying by the second and their eternal destinations are uncertain. They also understand that they can't be the same people they used to be. They can't re-engage in places that they've been delivered and set free from. They know they have to think forward, have a forward-thinking mindset. They know they can't be so busy doing busy work that they forget the important and primary task of why they're here in the first place. The mature church can't have that Jesus come take me away from this bad place and these bad people kind of theology. The mature church is fully aware they're not in peace times right now. They're at war. So they gird themselves accordingly for war. The mature church presents their bodies as living sacrifices, holy 
and acceptable unto God, which is their reasonable service, their reasonable act of worship, the Bible teaches us. They know they can't be on life support waiting for Jesus to return. They know that they can't have supernatural change using natural methods. There's something to ponder here. How do we justify a passive approach when spiritual activity is at an all-time high? For me, the passage that we just read in 1 Corinthians is pretty, pretty clear to me. Adults need to do adult things. Remember what I said in the intro. I simply want to build a bridge between where we are to where we need to be in the perfect will of God. Now, as I discussed a moment ago, there's a definitive path from boyhood to manhood. Sometimes we're expected to pass the baton a little bit sooner than we had hoped. Often it's passed too late and we don't get a chance to avoid decades of low self-esteem, alcoholism, abuse, a crippled generation. And sometimes the baton never gets passed at all. I want to share a quick story with you guys about two boys waiting for the baton to be passed. Both are standing on the track with their knees bent and their right hands stretched backwards with their heads turned so that they can begin their stride at the precise moment of exchange, the exchange of the baton from one hand to another. One of these boys can clearly see their father approaching, although it's slow, he can see him coming. He watched other boys get their batons passed to them and they race off along the track. He had to wait for what should be a traditional rite of passage that never happens. One of these boys' names in Hebrew is translated as beloved. The other boy on the track couldn't see his father approaching at all. He had his arms outstretched waiting, but he looked around, but his father was no longer on the track. He wondered who would give him the baton then so that he can run and obtain the prize. Who would help him walk through his traditional rite of passage? The other boys passed him by, but the boy slowly dropped his outstretched hand because he knew there was no baton coming, no validation, no point in standing on the track anymore. That boy's name in Hebrew is translated as God shall increase. We'll come back to the second boy a little later on. I want to talk to you a little bit about the first little boy. His, his name in Hebrew means beloved. His father's name was Jesse, and he was very old. He was relevant for several historic reasons. He was a prominent card-carrying member of Bethlehem society, high society, I, I would say, and the tribe of Judah. He was a farmer and a breeder of sheep. He would be the father of arguably, arguably the greatest king in biblical history. He would also be part of the bridge between the Old and the New Testament that would open the door for the one true King and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. Now, in today's worldview, being old is full of dichotomies, you know? I mean, people that are old, they want to have companionship, but they also, at the same time, want to be simply left alone. Sometimes they want to work and feel useful and valuable, and sometimes they just want to just rest and sleep for as many hours as they need to. Sometimes they want to remember important things in life, and sometimes they rather just forget those things. What a strange dichotomy, right? Jesse was considered old. He was mentioned as being old in the scripture. It was a, a part of his descriptive description. I'm not quite sure why that was, but I know he was the uh, father of eight sons. And he passed on certain traditions and, and values 
to his eight sons. One of his sons received a little, a little something different. He received some of the, uh, I would call them hard skills to be a farmer, to breed sheep, to herd sheep, to take care of sheep. While his other seven sons were groomed for royalty, they were groomed for greatness, they were groomed for kingship, they had the finest educations, they had the finest clothes, and had a stature to boot. While the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse, who was considered old, were given tasks that some might find demeaning. They were important. In those days, taking care of the sheep was a important job, even though it was frowned upon by many others in, I guess, elite society. But if you lose your sheep, you also lose your income and your ability to provide. So sheep had monetary value. So Jesse's eighth son, whose Hebrew name was Beloved, had a valuable job, even though he wasn't seen as valuable. He was in danger most of his life. His physical well-being was always in question. Any sheep could be lost to a, a, a ravenous wolf or a lion or a bear who were hungry. This ape son put his physical body in between hungry predators and the sheep who were valuable to the family's household income. He just wasn't valuable to those in the household. When I was coming up in Brooklyn, around middle school age, I guess, I was a member of a track and field team that was so successful that we were invited to the Penn Relays. In those days, the Penn Relays were probably the most prestigious opportunity during that time. And it might as well have been Hollywood for us or the national championship. It was that big for us. You do good at the Penn Relays and you carve a path for potentially the entrance to a great career in track and field. Every runner that's worth their salt cut their teeth at this rate, at this relay. Now we came into the relay with a, a bit of a buzz, you know? We were uh, pretty well touted. We were pretty good at what we did. Uh, one of our team members, he was uh, definitely athletic and talented, but a little bit overconfident. While the rest of us were nervous about being on so great a stage, he was cocky, wondering what all the hubbub was all about. But long story short, the race started. The first and second leg, leg had a sizable lead on the other runners. Uh, we were doing really good. We had uh, we were pacing well, and we had a, uh, a big gap between us and the other runners. I was the third leg in the, in the relay. I helped to maintain that gap. I didn't give any uh, way to any of our competitors. I passed the baton to the anchor, the same fellow I was talking about that was overconfident and cocky. Despite the instructions that our coach gave us, and he was an incredible coach, very good at what he did. The anchor grabbed the baton and shot off like a cannon. Now, if you're in track and field, you know that pacing is important. So is stamina, breathing, all those disciplines. Well, he grabbed the baton, shot off like a cannon, sped around the track, and within minutes, he was gassed. Gasping for air. He ran out of steam. The next closest competitor was a guy probably about 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. <laughs> and he was not running like he was in a hurry. He was just taking his time, just trotting. Trotting right past our anchor, all the way to a gold medal at the pen relay. 
we had to settle for a silver. The other point to that story that I think you'll see shortly. But in 1 Samuel 16 and 1, the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Samuel was concerned about that because Saul was the king at the time. He was the one that was passed the baton from the prophet Samuel. But as you know, if you read any of this uh, biblical account, you know that Saul dropped the baton. He missed the handoff. He failed at the beginning of the race and was found to be unfit and was disqualified from continuing to be king. So the Lord saw fit to remove the kingdom from Saul and give it to one of Jesse's sons, just to bring you up to speed. So just to be clear for those in the back, Samuel was sent to Jesse's house to have a special religious ceremony and pass the baton to a new king. Almost all of Jesse's sons were invited. Don't forget what I said earlier. Jesse had eight sons, but only seven sons were invited to this special ceremony. Now, remember the words of the Lord to Samuel in the first verse that we just read. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Now, in the Lord's mind, all of Jesse's sons were invited to the ceremony, right? Jesse walked in his own intellect and saw fit to invite the seven sons that he had groomed for kingship, the seven sons he had groomed for leadership, give them a fine education, fine language skills, communication skills, warriors in battle, all the ones that would be fit to be a king. Jesse invited all seven of those. Samuel looked them all up and down, looked at Eliab first. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. It got to be him. And the Lord said, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesse told his son Abinadab to step up, step up in front of Samuel. Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen either. Then Jesse brought up Shemaiah. Nope. And all the seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked that big question. The one that should have made everybody stop and think. Or even just say, wow. Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Samuel saw all seven of them, right? Is this it? What an interesting question. Are these all the sons you have? What's your approach when you're surrounded by brothers and friends and family, but no one even knows that you're there? They can't see your accomplishments. They don't even notice that, you're victories, that you have victories. They don't see why you're even relevant. They don't hear your cries, and they definitely can't see your tears. Jesse replied, there is still the youngest, but he's out in the field watching the sheep and goats. There's nothing worse than having someone closest to you that doesn't even believe in you. Samuel says, send for him at once. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. There's going to be times in our lives. You probably already experienced it once. You may have been through it 10 times 
where the Lord's going to choose you and people around you are not going to agree. The Lord's going to give you a mission. People around you are going to say, why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense. There are going to be people around you that are going to not understand why you're doing what you're doing and why you feel so strong about your convictions. This young boy was given an assignment. Might be viewed as non-essential busy work, but he never got the baton. He never had the acceptance, the validation. You're not only a member, but you're one of us. You're vital and relevant. That's what we want to hear, but David never heard that. I can't imagine how many times he waited for the baton and it was never passed to him. Now, scripture doesn't really touch this at all, really, but I can't help but think about how he survived this long. In my own life, I know what I went through, but I don't. I can't imagine how David survived this. I don't know how you survived some of the things you're going through. I can only assume that he loved his father so much and his responsibility that he wrapped himself up in his work. And he found acceptance and belonging with those that he was given to serve, whether it be the sheep or what have you. Simply a guess on my part, but let's fast forward to 1 Samuel 17 real quick. At this point, David was already anointed to be the king and the spirit of the Lord was upon him, but he was still herding sheep, killing bears and lions and still being ignored by his family. Boy, I don't know about you, but that preaches right there. He was anointed in front of his father and his brothers, his seven brothers. But he still was relegated to serving the sheep and still treated as if he was not the next coming king. Think about that for a second, because that's just really deep to me. He was anointed in front of them. They know that he is going to be the king over them. But they only saw him with limitations. They only saw him as the herder of the sheep. They only saw him as being worthy to herd sheep. That should make your eyebrows go up just a little bit. Now, probably in the area of time, maybe two to five years from that point that he was anointed as the next king to replace Saul, he was given additional roles, the role of charcuterie maker, making meat and cheeses and fresh breads to bring to his brothers on the battlefield where no one was even battling, giving them sustenance and they weren't even doing any work. Just sitting there stewing in their fears and their doubts while this nine foot nine giant named Goliath was running down God and running down his nation for over 40 days. You mean over a month. They would go home, go to sleep, eat, get back up, go back to the battlefield and listen to this giant, this blasphemer, tearing down God, tearing down his nation for 40 days, more than 40 days. And they sit to eat meat and cheeses and won't even pick up their sword. I think that'll preach as well. I mean, does this resonate with you guys? I mean, you have a whole crew of people standing on the sidelines, terrified by fear, struggling to locate their faith. I would say that's even relevant to what we're experiencing around us now, wouldn't you say? It's miraculous that that God used David and one smooth stone to bring down a giant and secure a nation. But I want to deal with the other part, the part where he was essentially banished to sheep herding, listening to the laughter of his father and sons while they drank and were merry in the house. And he sat outside in the cold watching sheep to make sure they or him or both weren't eaten by twilight. 
I'm going to say something to you that you may know firsthand, and I know I do. The places that we feel like we're banished to, they may seem beneath you to be there. Maybe you thought more of yourself or the position that you should be in by this time in your life. I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that God is and will work in and through you mightily if you're faithful where you've been placed. You can hear the laughter of your family and friends while they're having a good time and you're doing work that you may deem less than desirable. But I tell you this today, let David be an example for you that where God has placed you, you're there for a reason, you're there for a purpose, glean all you can get from that experience. Get all you can get from it. David got something of such value that we can stand here today in 2022 and deem him as the greatest king in biblical and any other history, any other world, nation, province, what have you. There hasn't been a king made greater than David. Now tell me this, was he great because he was made king or was he great because of what he learned and the keys that he developed and grew in before he was made king? Don't look at your circumstances as your permanent place that you're going to dwell right now. You're getting keys or there are keys available. There's methods and tools available right now. Glean those. David, in my mind, in my opinion, David was the greatest king ever because of what he learned while being a sheep herder in a place that was undesirable, that was dangerous, where he was kind of ostracized from his family, so to speak, saw as saw and viewed as less than. That's what made him the greatest king ever because he had a heart for God. He had a heart for the sheep. He understood sheep like nobody else could, like Jesse couldn't, like his seven brothers couldn't. That job, that assignment that he was in that was considered undesirable, that was uh, that made him a laughing stock in his own household, made him one of the greatest kings ever. Let that sink in. Let it sink in. The goal is the garden. Always was. Always will be. Remember what I said earlier. I just want to build a bridge between here and there. The things that look less than favorable to you are more than favorable to God. He wanted David in that place because he knew what David would become. He wants you in the place that you're in because he knows what you're going to become. I want to tell you the story of the other little boy really quickly. The other little boy stood on the track waiting to receive the baton so that he may run. But when he turned around in expectation, there was no father to pass it to him. No rite of passage, no initiation. Not unlike the first boy, except he learned to trade. The second little boy learned how to fight by being beaten and bullied. This little boy didn't have a mentor to tell him which streets to not walk down. Because if you enter gang territory, you're subject to their penalties. This little boy was loved unconditionally by his mother and grandmother, but tolerated by the rest of his family. This little boy had to learn how to cook because his mother had a full-time job, night school, and a part-time job. That she worked and studied for every single day. This little boy lived in fear that he would never have a family because he never really saw one before. At least not in real life. This little boy mentally prepared himself to be in prison by 21 because he never read the passage about turning the other cheek. 
And he thought he had to either adapt or die. This little boy was waiting for a baton that would never come. A rite of passage that would never be passed. Passing on street corners where outstretched hands of killers and drug pushers and gang members offering a family. The baton would never come. The baton would never come. This little boy had to learn to run a different race for a different prize. Two boys with two very different paths, but one father, and neither of their father's name was Jesse. These two boys are perhaps in the room with you right now. Maybe they're in the car with you driving to work. Maybe they're in your classrooms. Maybe they're in your Bible study. Maybe they're in your Sunday service. These two boys are very present through the experiences and the sadness and the regret, the heartbreak, the victories, and even the breakthroughs. But I don't want to talk to them today. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you, man. Maybe you have your baton. Maybe it has yet to arrive. I still want to talk to you. I want to talk to you about your father. How long are you going to wait on that track with your arms outstretched for a baton that's not going to be passed? Perhaps a baton that doesn't mean as much as you thought it did. That second little boy waited for, I'd probably say about 35 years for a baton that would never be passed. He waited and waited and waited. When will you forget those things that were behind and reach forward to those things which are ahead? We, us, me, may have stood on that track waiting to be recognized, validated, and seen and as, as, as worth it. But somewhere on a hill called Golgotha, centuries earlier, the father that mattered the most, more important than the father that wasn't there, is saying, maybe even yelling, I see you. I can see you. You matter. Before we even knew who we were, we were destined for greatness. Before we even got on that track with our arms outstretched behind us, we were already destined for greatness. We got an enemy out there that doesn't want us to know that. Doesn't want the little boys and little girls to know that. But it's a fact, nonetheless. Everything in this world is working to get you to accept the lie that you are invisible, that you don't matter, you don't bring anything relevant to the table, that you already lost the battle, that you're not born to fight and you're not born to win. Bogging you down with busy work and counterfeit obligations and soul-sucking duties and time-stealing relationships. But that's all so you never know you were supposed to be playing offense instead of defense. You're supposed to be throwing, running, and catching, not chasing and deflecting and playing prevent defense. Despite very popular belief, we're here to pick fights. We're here to take territory. We're here to subdue. We're here to be forerunners for a kingdom to come. Your father, our father, already gave us the baton. The one we're waiting for on that track all these years isn't the baton of value. It isn't the baton of worth. We already have the baton that we need. 
So right now, I just rebuke every lying voice that tries to distract you and tell you that this episode isn't for you. It doesn't apply to you. And your situation is different. It's unique. And nobody understands what you're going through. I speak to every effort in you to do the will of the Lord. That's been stagnated and nullified and inhibited. And I speak release to you in Jesus' name. I apply the blood of Jesus over your mind right now. I declare the word from Genesis all the way to Revelation that speaks to you, that it be illuminated for your eyes to see and your heart to receive. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We're here to pick fights. Jeremiah 51 and 20 says, this is what God said to his people Israel. You are my war club, my weapons of war. With you, I will smash nations. With you, I will bring kingdoms to ruin. Romans 8 and 37 says, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How do you conquer what you won't confront? 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4 says, therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. You can't have a soldier without a war. And Revelation 3 and 21 says, To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my father in his throne. You can't overcome something if you're not in a position to go through anything. I don't know where your father has you right now, but he's more than able to deliver you and bring you out. The only thing I ask of you today is this. Just this one thing. Just this one thing I ask of you today. I know you felt let down and it affected your heart. You waited with the rest of the sheet while your brother seemed to get all the breaks, all the glory, all the good fortune. You used to be excited about ministry used to be excited about relationships and excited about love and excited about life. You were on fire for serving other people. But you got tired. You got weary of waiting for your opportunity. For your coming out party, so to speak. You wanted that warm feeling of acceptance, but it just never seemed to come. I'm just asking you one more time to stretch your hands out. You're still on that track. Stretch your hands out one more time. I know you can't see the baton and maybe you can't see your father running toward you, but trust me, he is. And he's coming. He has your answer. He has your validation. He's about to initiate you. The story of the prodigal son is merely a picture of how he feels about you. I'm asking you today to stretch your hand out one more time. Turn your head. Look to him this time. I know it didn't happen last time, but this time it's going to work. This time you're going to run. I want to just tell you today, that second little boy that we were talking about was Yusef. We'll talk more about him on future episodes, but I just want you to know that I didn't get that baton from the place I thought I was supposed to get it from. But today I have a baton that's much greater an initiation, a mandate, and a purpose. That's one of the reasons why I do what I do on They Call Me Mr. You. Wherever you are today, 
however you're hearing our podcast for the first time or the 50th time, thank you so much for making a Call Me Mr. You part of your morning, your day, and your week. We are your weekly mirror check before you go change the world. Thank you for joining us again. Please subscribe, share, and listen. Have a great day. Enjoy the music. Coach out. Thanks again for listening to the Call Me Mr. You, the podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show. Please like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel for all of our full-length live episodes. And of course, if you're an audio listener, wherever you enjoy your podcast listening, you can find the Call Me Mr. You, the podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show. Go change the world. Coach out.